We're going to go through the scrolls, part one. And notice, I'm going to use terms because you, you have in front of you, if you have a book, you've got a book in front of you. But I'm going to use terms more akin to what they would call it historically. We're going to go through the Bible scroll by scroll. And I think that's important that you understand it as a scroll. And then perhaps when you understand it as a scroll, then you can also understand why in the book of Revelation, John sees a scroll. Because that's what he's accustomed to. He doesn't see a book necessarily, but he sees a, a scroll. All right. Tonight is going to be the first part looking at the Old Testament. Great. I'm going to talk about divisions that exist in the English Bible. So what we have in front of us, it's an English translation. Always remember that. What we're reading today is the English version of a Hebrew manuscript and a Greek manuscript. All right, so that's also important for us to understand. We're reading an English version, obviously, because we speak English, but that has come to us through languages. The first language is that of Hebrew. There's some Aramaic in the Bible, and there's also Greek. All right, so scholars, remember this. Your, your Old Testament is written primarily in ancient Hebrew. Your New Testament is written in ancient Greek. And there's a little bit of Aramaic found in the Old, the Old Testament as well. All right? There are three notes that I want to make that I think are very important. So I want you to follow these, these notes here. Here's the first one. Always remember that someone, some group at some point, put all of the scrolls together and presented us with what we have today, our Bible. So if you would take your mind back just for a little bit, take it back thousands of years. Remember, all of these scrolls existed independently of each other. In fact, they were written at different times by different authors and in some cases in different locations. So someone has to do the job of what? compiling all of these scrolls. So that alone should also teach you that there are people that understood the Bible scroll by scroll, not as an entire book. So there was an audience that only got the books of Moses, never heard anything about Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel. Why? It wasn't written yet. Does that make sense? And so watch this. Somehow, just with the books of Moses, they were able to have what? Relationship with God. You see how that works? So just by reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they were able to connect with God. And that teaches you something about the potency of God's word. All we need from God is one word. And one word is sufficient. Okay? So the Bible was compiled, and this is a very tricky subject. I'm, I don't even think I'm an expert at it. It was compiled canonically. And what that means is a group of people had to come together and decide that these scrolls, these manuscripts were authoritative. They were the word of God. Now keep in mind, there were many other manuscripts written during the ancient time. So it just wasn't Genesis. There were other books written or other scrolls written. So when the time came for compiling at some point, whether it's compiling the Old Testament or compiling the New Testament or the whole thing, someone had to, uh, can I say, put down some rules to say, this book is the word of God. This is not. 
So do you have anyone that um, is from a Catholic background? Anyone from a Catholic background? How many have read or seen a Catholic Bible? And so you know that in the Catholic Bible, there are books in that Bible that you will not find in your, can I use this term, Protestant Bible. Those are called apocryphal books. So you may see some books that you will not see in your English. That's what I mean by canonical. Somebody had to decide, or a group had to decide, this scroll is authoritative. This is not. So they put a rule together. How do they judge that? They look and they compared manuscripts and they said, this is an authentic scroll. There's something that you have to at least admit at some point in this process. And that is that we trust God. I'm over here. Look this way. Don't even worry about that. It's very important. At some point, we trust God with this process. At some point, you have to say that. We trust God. How do we know that? Because according to Jeremiah, he watches over his word to perform it. So at some point, you've got to trust God that using men who are flawed, like myself and you, he would superintend the process to make sure that what you and I needed, we got it. There's a faith element to that. Now, scholars are going to fight for days, but there's a faith element that if God has spoken a word, he's also going to make sure that that word gets to me. And it doesn't matter through what channel. It doesn't matter. It could be an ungodly scholar, a godly scholar. He's going to make sure that his word gets to me. Why is that important? Isaiah 55, the word that he releases, it has to get to us because it cannot do what? It cannot return to him void. So there's a faith element where we trust that Genesis is what God wants me to know. Exodus is what God wants me to know. Malachi is what God wants me to know. Matthew is what God wants me to know. Because there are other gospels written as well. So if you can't go scholastic, you can say, I trust God that what I have, he has allowed me to receive because I need to hear from him. All right, so that's what canonical means, that there's an authority behind these particular books. Number two, this may surprise some of you. Some of you may know this. The Bible is compiled with chapters and verses. And what that means is the original scrolls did not have chapters and verses. So I want you to think for a minute now. It's like if I were to come up here with, can I say, a roll of tissue paper or toilet paper, and I rolled it out, that would be the scroll. There are no chapters in it. There are no verses. So Genesis would, would read like this. In the beginning, God, and it would just keep reading all the way down through the scroll. When the Hebrew scholars decided to put the manuscripts together and the English or the Greek scholars, it was at that time that they began to add chapters, chapter one, and they began to add verses. And also, you've got to trust that at some point, God is in that process. However, you don't have to argue with somebody about Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, because that thought does not exist in the original manuscript. It helps you, it helps me to understand a particular way to read something, but that was not in the original manuscript. That's more for us to help us in the reading process. All right? Sometimes you're reading a book of the Bible, and you realize that what you just read in chapter 1 continues in chapter 2, and you kind of say, well, why did it break there? Well, the scholars had to decide. That's a good place. I'm going to suggest this for the reader to breathe, <laughs> to gain your thought and to continue on. But remember, there were no chapters. There were no verses. Can I take it one step further? There were also no titles to the scrolls. So that's also important. So you didn't pick up a scroll and the scroll said, the book of Genesis. 
And so as we were translating the Bible, we then added titles, and I'm going to show you how Hebrews added their titles and how we've come to our titles in English. So you'd pick up the scroll and the scroll would begin, right? Uh, uh, the, the conversation or the word from God, but there is no title ascribed to that. All right? So then what I'm really trying to show you is that sometimes if you argue about certain things, you're really not arguing about anything. If you argue about, no, this is the book of Genesis, that's what we have come to call it based on our understanding of what this book is trying to convey. Do you follow what I'm trying to say there? So it's important to understand what should we be arguing about, what's valid, what has spoils after the conversation, and what really has, has no spoils at all. The third thing that I want you to note is the Bible is compiled, most of it, categorically and not chronologically. This is also important for your reading. When, when I say chronological, it presupposes that this comes after this, comes after this, comes after this. In some cases, yes. In some cases, it's clearly categorical. So for instance, when we look tonight at the five books of Moses, there is a sense in which Genesis follows Exodus, follows, there's chronology there. But there are other parts of the Bible where it's not chronological. So if we keep reading all the way through the Old Testament and we come down to the book of Esther, and what comes after the book of Esther, scholars? Job. But the problem is, Job does not live after Esther. Do you see what I'm saying? Job lives during the time of Abraham. But his story fits nicely in the poetic category. So he's part of the Psalms, the Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. You're going to also notice this when you get to after the Song of Solomon comes the prophet Isaiah. But don't think that Isaiah comes after the Song of Solomon because his prophecy takes place during the days of the kings. So what we're looking at in most cases is categories, ways that we have put these scrolls together. It makes sense. These are the five books of Moses. These are the historical books. These are the prophetic books. These are the wisdom books. So it is with the New Testament. These are the Gospels. Do you know that the Gospels were written after the book of Acts? Would make sense, right? Because the book of Acts takes place just a few days after Jesus raises. Correct? The Gospels are written later, but categorically it makes sense to open the New Covenant with the Gospels then the book of Acts, and then we can talk about the epistles. And again, when you read the epistles, Romans does not come after the book of Acts. In fact, it's one of Paul's last letters, but it just seems to make sense placing it there. So much of how the Bible is compiled is designed to help the reader in understanding the story. So it's compiled in a particular, particular order. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at how the English Bible has been compiled, and we're going to talk about where it has, it has come from. So we're going to look at Old Testament divisions of the Bible, and there are four basic divisions of the Old Testament. In fact, I think you know this already. There's the books of Moses, also called the Torah. We're going to look at that. You don't have to write it. There's also the historical books. We're going to look at them. There are the poetic books, and then we're going to look at the prophetic books. Those are the four divisions of the Old Testament. If you want to use a numbering scheme, remember this number, these numbers, 5 and 12. 5 and 12. 5 and 12. 
And you're going to see that it's broken up nicely. Five books of Moses, 12 historical books, five prophetic, uh, poetic books. And then we're going to show you how the prophetic books are, are actually designed and, and broken up. Okay, so let's go, let's go. We're going to start with the Torah. And so we're at the beginning of the Bible. We're at the book of Genesis. And we're going to look at the five first scrolls or books. The Hebrews call this division the Torah. And we've heard that term before. The word Torah simply means law. Taken one step further, the word Torah means life. To the Hebrew mind, Torah is life. And everything rises and falls on one's understanding of the Torah. Most Hebrews, in fact, I would say 99% of Hebrews believe that the Torah was authored by Moses. Okay? Now, notice this. Nowhere in those five books does Moses say, I wrote this. In fact, very few writers would say, I wrote this. In fact, Paul is perhaps the only one that would say, this is my letter. You notice in the Gospels, Matthew doesn't say, I wrote this. Mark does not say, this is my gospel. John does not say, this is my gospel. So scholarship has proven over time that these books belong to these particular authors. Okay? Remember what we believe, though. We believe that God is the author of Scripture. The human being is the amanuensis or the secretary that's writing down what God is dictating. And we know that to be true because Peter teaches us that holy men wrote and spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, the author of Scripture is God. The writers of Scripture are men. And what keeps the process flawless is the inspiration of the Spirit of God. All right? Now, there is, there is a conversation about the inerrancy of Scripture. Are there mistakes in the Bible? I would argue that possibly there may be linguistic errors in certain places, but the spirit of the text is without error. And that's what we're really after, you know. The letter is the ABCs of the text, but underneath the letter, there's something called the spirit of the text, which is the real message that God is trying to get to, to you and I. It's also called the Pentateuch. Hands up if you heard that term, the Pentateuch. Well, thank you. The Pentateuch is now a Greek term. So Torah is Hebrew. Pentateuch is a Greek way of saying penta, five tukos scrolls. Pentateuch. These are the five scrolls of Moses. It's a Greek term. Both are synonymous. If you hear somebody saying I need you to go to the Pentateuch. They're talking about the five books of Moses. Somebody says, could you open the Torah? It's the same thing that they are, are talking about. Let's go through the, each one book by book. I think you'll enjoy this. The book of Genesis, nowhere do you find a title for it. So then where does the title Genesis come from? I'm going to show you a trick that Hebrew scholars do because it was the Hebrew scribes that took the manuscripts and translated them. So it was the scribes that then came up with titles. In Hebrew culture, looking at the five books of Moses, what they did was they took the first two words of the very first sentence of each book to come up with a title. So when they looked at the scroll of Genesis, it goes like this. How does it, Genesis start? In the, that's the title in Hebrew. The word is Bereshith. The word Bereshith means in beginnings. 
So if you're reading a Hebrew Bible, it wouldn't be called Genesis, it would, it would be called Bereshith. When we're translating from Hebrew to Greek, using the same method, understanding that this is a book of beginnings, we now come to the word Henaseos, and that's the word that we get Genesis from, or beginnings. The word Genesis is a Greek term, origins, beginnings, the genesis of something. So in most cases, what you're reading when you read these titles in your English Bible, you're reading a Greek translation of a Hebrew title. Got that? So Genesis is in fact a Greek translation of a Hebrew title. Speaking to a good Hebrew, he would say the book of Bereshith, the book of beginnings. Greek person would say the book of, of Genesis. Exodus, once again, same analogy. The very first words in the book of Exodus starts like this. Now these are the names. And that has to be explained. So the Hebrew scribe took that and said, this is the name of this book. These are the names or the names. And they called this book in Hebrew, Vehile Shimoth. And you know that word Shemoth comes from the word Shem. And the word Shem means name. And so when they studied the book of Exodus, they said the book of Exodus is about the names that went down to Egypt. The names that God preserved in Egypt. And the names that God brought out of Egypt. This is a book about the names. A nation that goes by names. When the, Jew, when the Greek translators came along, they looked at the book and they chose the theme of the book, what the book was actually about, and they called it Exodus. Exodus is a, it's a compound word. Ek means out, hodos means road. So an Exodus is finding the road out of something. It's exiting something. So again, we're using the Greek title for the word Exodus, and Exodus is a coming out of something. So this will help you because in some cases when you're talking to certain people, a Jewish person may say, no, this book is really about the names. But then the Greek person will say, no, this book is about the Exodus. Same thing, isn't it? Because it's the names that God brought out. It's just understanding how the language has brought these definitions and titles to us, and thus we have the book of Exodus. Leviticus is quite interesting. Leviticus, again, the, the first few words goes like this. And the Lord called unto Moses from the tabernacle. And so the scribe said, well, this book is about those that the Lord has called. And so using that, they come up with this term. The word is vahikra. And that word means, and he called. But I want you to think because there's revelation in everything. Because the book really is about God speaking to people that he has called. He's called them to be a nation. He's called the Levites to priesthood. You see that? So it's really a book for those who are called. And so when you start reading about sacrifices, sacrifices only matter to those whom God has called. Holy living only matters to those who are the called. All of these requirements are for people who God has called. But how then do we get Leviticus? Well, the Greek translators came along and they said, well, this book really is focusing on the Levites. 
and the Levitical priesthood. I'm going to make a suggestion here for you tonight. I think that the, the word Leviticus for this book does a little bit of a disservice. Because most people, when they read the book, they think this is all about the Levites. But the book is not all about the Levites. The Levites are at the center of the book because they're the ones administering much of what God wants. But the book is for the entire nation to live as a priesthood unto God. So, but they came up with this word, Lewitikon, that which pertains to the Levites. And so thus we get the word Leviticus pertaining to the Levites. I think the book... Well, let me put it like this. I think Leviticus is comparable to 1 Peter when Peter says, ye are a holy nation, royal priesthood. So the book is really about a nation living as a priesthood unto God. And within that nation, there is a specific priesthood called the Levitical priesthood. But that's how we get the word Leviticus. Numbers, very interesting book as well, too. When I was younger, I used to think that numbers had to do, just a little boy, I heard the word numbers in the Bible. I thought it had to do with counting, one, two, three, four. So I always thought this book, I never knew the Bible, was about just counting numbers. That was my thought on it. But here, there are two Hebrew titles for the book of Numbers. I'm going to use the second one. There's the first one that said, and he said, but there's another word in the very first paragraph that says, in the wilderness, and God spoke to them in the wilderness. The Hebrew scribes and scholars said, this book is about our experiences in the wilderness. And so in the Hebrew Bible, this book is called Bimidvar. That word means in the wilderness. And they're not wrong because it is about their experience walking in the wilderness, water in the wilderness, disobedience in the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness, Aaron dying in the wilderness, Miriam dying in the wilderness. It's about the wilderness experience. The Greek writers said, well, it's more than just that. It's based on, listen to this, the two censuses that, that Moses makes when he counts them in chapter 1, and in chapter 26, he counts the nation again. And so they've come to call it the book of numbering. It's like, you know, the government takes a census and they count all the people. Well, Moses did that in chapter 1. He counted all the people just before they got ready to march. That was the first. And then the second time when that generation disobeyed God and the next generation came up, he counted them a second time for going into the promise. And thus, from the Greek, we get the word numbers. It's a book about those two censuses. I think that's very significant. My thought is this. When God counts you, he's counting on you. <laughs> that's my thinking. That means he counts you because he's counting on you to accomplish an end. And so when that first generation failed the end, what does Moses do? He counts a second generation to say God is counting on you to complete what the first generation failed to do. And thus the book of Numbers. Deuteronomy, very, very simple. The Hebrews call it Hadivarim. These are the words. They're talking about Moses now talking to the, the second generation. Because that first generation was dying in the wilderness. They disobeyed God. The younger generation comes up. Moses is an old man now. And he has to repeat the words that God gave him in Exodus to this generation. So he's giving it to a second generation the first instructions given. All right? 
So now when God repeats something, we can conclude that a generation has not heard it. So he moves to a generation, a younger generation, and these are the words. The word Deuteronomy comes to us from the Greek. It's a compound word, and it simply means this. Deutero means to, and nomos means law. And what they're suggesting there is Moses does the second giving of the same law, Deuteronomy. And so he gives the law once again to the second generation, and they can go in. Either one works, depending on what you want to use it for. Those are the five books of Moses. Now we move from there. We're finished the Torah. We go to the historical books. There are 12 books in this section. We're going to go from Joshua, and we're going to end up at Esther. These are called the historical books. All right. In most cases, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you what I think the theme of these books are. Some of these books are named by the character. They're also named by the activities of the book. So logically, the very first book is the book of Joshua. And it's, whether you're in the Hebrew text or the Greek text, it's called Joshua. It's named after its primary character. Joshua, the one that takes the second generation over the Jordan into promise. In my thinking, the theme of this book is possessing. And Joshua is going to show us how a second generation can possess the promises of God. So when you go there, you're going to see what it takes to, if you say God has made a promise to you, Joshua is going to show you what it takes to possess that promise and the war that you have to fight to possess the things that God has promised. After Joshua comes the book of Judges, very simple. We're now in the promised land. And at some point, this is critical. Either we follow the laws of God or he raises up people to judge us. And so this is a book of cycles where God will raise up judges. They're called shopatims. They're judges that are going to judge the people and make sure that the people don't go back into cycles of sin. So we have people like Samson, right? We have people like Gideon. These are all judges. Even Deborah is raised up to be a judge. We're in the land of promise, but now we've got to make sure that we don't go into cycles. All right, and can I show you something else? As you read the Old Testament, you will find that much of the New Testament is actually the repetition of the Old. So when you get to this place, guess what? Paul says, judge yourself and make sure that you're not in a cycle, you're not repeating certain things. So what's in the Old continues in the New. And my belief is this, there's really nothing new under the sun. Church people are no different than Israelites. I'm telling you, it's, it's no different. It's the same. It's just we live in a different time, have more technology. This, But it's the same human nature that we're dealing with. God remains the same. Everyone will say amen to that. Well, so do we. <laughs> same struggle. Moses' struggle is the same struggle that leaders have. The struggle of the congregation, the same struggle that these are like. It's the same thing. Great service last week, we fall down this week. <laughs> Miracle yesterday, we fall down. It's the same cycle. And somehow God wants us to learn from those things and break those cycles. All right? That's what the judges are all about. Ruth, a very good book named after its primary character. Not Naomi, but this wonderful young lady named Ruth. And it's a book about faithfulness. It's about not just Ruth's faithfulness, but God's faithfulness. And when he finds someone that's faithful, how he works and shows people what's called his loving kindness, 
his covenant faithfulness. It's a book about, about faith, faithfulness. Then we have First and Second Samuel. And again, if you're going to do studies in this and you pick up a Hebrew Bible, it's called a Tanakh, you might see that some of these books are not divided like in the English. So in the Hebrew Bible, it would actually be one book, just the book of Samuel. The English translators decided that it needs to be broken up into First and Second Samuel. So whereas we have 39 scrolls in the English, a Hebrew Bible would only have 24 because they've condensed a lot of these books. First, second Kings, one book. First and second Chronicles, one book. All right? Again, first and second Samuel, my sentiment is it's about early prophecy. And you're going to start seeing what Samuel does as a prophet and a priest. In fact, the New Testament writers will teach you that Samuel is the first of all the great prophets. And you're going to start seeing what prophecy looks like and the struggle to prophesy to a generation that is not always willing to hear. First and second Kings, very, very simple. It's a study of the kings that come to the throne. After Saul comes David, comes Solomon, comes Rehoboam, onward, breaking up of the kingdom into two separate kingdoms, north and south, and how kings affect the fate of a nation. I think what's important there is how leadership impacts people. And so you're going to see when there's a good king, then things begin to happen to the people. Uh, Josiah is a good example. And when there's a wicked king like Ahab, we start seeing what happens. It's about kingship or government or leadership. Then we move to First and Second Chronicles. These are interesting books because what these books do, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, is they chronicle the history of humanity. That's why First Chronicles starts with Adam. And it's actually a study of all of human history, but specifically focused on God's dealing at some point with the Israelite nation. So it's called Chronicles from the word chronology. It's a study of the times. And there's going to be a lot of genealogy in there, but there's some wonderful stories as well. One scholar said this. I think he has a point. He says, whereas First and Second Kings is written from the throne, First and Second Chronicles is written from the temple. And it's a beautiful truth because you will see how they tell the same story, but from a different vantage point. So when Saul dies in the book of Kings, he fell on his sword and killed himself because he's talking from the vantage point of the throne. That's what kings do. They kill themselves in battle if they're... But when the writer of Chronicles writes, he says, no, he didn't kill himself. God killed him. Because from the temple, you see things from God's perspective it's just two different ways of looking at the same, the same story. Ezra is a book of restoration. So we're, we're doing a little bit of chronology here because after First and Second Kings, we go to Babylon. First and Second Chronicles is a little bit of a, can I say, interjection. But then we pick up the story again, and now we're coming out of Babylon, and we're coming out with Ezra. It's a story of restoration. And what does Ezra, scholars, what does Ezra restore first? The very first thing he has to restore is the word of God. So he stands up, he's a scribe, and he begins to read the Torah. And the Bible says, this is beautiful, it begins to rain. And the, the Hebrews are there with their children, husbands, wives, everyone standing in the rain all day while Ezra reads the Torah, the scroll. Restoration begins when people love God's word. 
not coming to service. When people begin to love God's word, we're on the way to restoration. After Ezra comes Nehemiah, this is the second aspect of restoration. Nehemiah begins to build the walls around the city and we begin to restore life back in Israel. Back to the way it was before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed us. So Nehemiah again, it's restoration. There's one more book in the history section. I hope I'm not going too fast. It's okay for everyone? In the history section, there's the book of Esther. And Esther is an interesting book because it is also chronological. But what Esther does is it, it, it documents what happens to those Hebrews who decide that they're not going to leave Babylon. And by the time they leave Babylon, it's no longer Babylon. It is now called Persia. The Persians have come, current day Iranians, and now they're in Persia, and a group decide that they're going to stay here. It's comfortable here. They're going to settle here, and Esther is part of that group that are in, in Persia. And Esther is actually not her Hebrew name. And see how we say Esther, Esther, her Hebrew name is Hadassah, right? Esther chapter 2, you can see it right there. That's her name. I think it's verse 9. Hadassah, but Esther is her Persian name. And so what you're going to see now is a story of how God can preserve his people outside of the place that he promised them. Because they were all supposed to go back with Ezra, Nehemiah, and the others, but they decided, this group decided to stay in Persia and you know the rest, what happens down there. So we're going to see how God preserves his people, how he uses people, um, brings them to the kingdom for such a time as this. Okay, so that is, those 12 books are the historical section. So you've got the five books of Moses, the 12 historical books, and what you've actually done there, believe it or not, is you've covered all of the Bible. Agreed? So you're finished. You're pretty finished. You're, you're finished the Bible in terms of the Torah and all of history. Because remember now, everything else that you're going to read has already taken place in those books. Do you understand what I'm saying? So Job has already happened. It's just that you haven't read about it yet. And David has already been born. He was born in 2 Samuel, right? So you see what I'm saying, that the Bible is finished? Isaiah has already prophesied. He was prophesying before we went to Babylon. Daniel is already finished because he was with us in Babylon. Ezekiel is over. Solomon is dead. So the Bible really, if you think about it, the Old Testament, is really from, watch this, it's really from Genesis to Esther. Got it? So now what we're going to do is we're going to look at a different section now. But remember, this section has already happened. So remember I'm telling you that it's categorical, not chronological. So now we're going to look at five books that are commonly called the poetic books. We can subdivide them into songs. We can subdivide them into prayers. We can subdivide them into wisdom literature. But these are five poetic books that we find in the Bible. And they cover a range of, can I say, life themes. But remember, we're not following Job because he comes after Esther. He's already happened but we're reading him categorically. So when we go to the book of Job, which is the first, the theme of the book of Job obviously is suffering. And I would even argue this, Job is what I call a theodicy. It's a book that tries to explain the presence of evil 
in light of the goodness of God. And are people asking, here's the question they ask, why do bad things happen to good people? And even if you don't say that, you know you've asked that question. You say, why me? <laughs> what have I done? And that's what this book is going to try to explain to us in a poetic way. Why do the righteous suffer? After Job comes the Psalms. Once again, I'm going to do a quick, quick word here. The word Psalms is not the Hebrew title for this book. The Hebrew title is Tehillim. And Tehillim means prayers. So these are the prayers of the Hebrews. And at times they pray their prayers in songs. At times their prayers are lamentations. At times they even pray God destroy my enemy. Imprecatory prayers. Those are prayers that you pray but you don't let anyone know. God, I don't like so-and-so. I wish you would just... Well, you're going to find David praying similar prayers like that. He is not the only author of the Psalms, by the way. Solomon writes. Moses writes. So there are a variety of writers that contribute to the songbook. Most scholars will tell you that the Psalms represents the heart of the Old Testament because it sits in the middle of the Old Testament. And at the heart of the Christian life is our prayers to God, right? Talking about our circumstances, our situations before God. So this book is going to deal with our prayers and our praises before God. The word Psalms, again, it's it's a Greek word. It simply means songs or songs that are played and accompanied by music, psalms. And so in a conference, we might say, we're inviting someone to sing, and Joel, we would call that person the psalmist. And the beautiful thing about it is most of these prayers or songs were sung generally with an instrument called a psalter. And if you read them, by the way, whenever you're reading the psalms in a King James, you will see titles over them. So you might see a psalm of David upon Neginoth. And what the writer is actually doing there is he's describing what instrument should be played when you're singing or praying this song upon an instrument of five strings. He'll say that. And then he's giving instructions to the Levitical musicians. What should they play when this prayer or this song is being, is being sung? Okay, those are the Psalms, 150 of them. Then we have Proverbs written by Solomon. Again, not chronological because Solomon is long gone based on where we are, but placed there because it's wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is powerful. It's truth thrown down beside something. It's a mashal. It's a proverb. It's a forward word. It's a word of instruction that moves us forward. One person told me this. I think it'd be true. They said, if, if you really want to live a successful life, read one Proverbs every single day for 31 days. And just keep doing that over and over again until that entire book is committed to memory. Because that's perhaps one of the most powerful books to commit to memory. Now, we've taken segments out. We've committed to memory, right? Trust in the Lord with all thine. Lean not to thine own, but in all thy ways... And he shall. Imagine committing that entire book to memory. It's a very, very powerful, very, very powerful book. And so you'll have an answer for everything. Even if you, fellas, if you are with a woman that's contentious, better to live on the top of a house. 
That's what Solomon says. Now, is there wisdom in that? You decide. Don't go to your neighbor's house too often. Unless he gets tired of you. Is there wisdom in all of that? I would think so. Imagine committing that to memory now and then allowing that to guide your daily decisions. All right? And I think the writer will tell you this. My son, take heed to these words and hang them around your neck like a chain. Something of great value, significant. And then we have Ecclesiastes. Again, another Greek title. Because in the Hebrew Bible, it is not called Ecclesiastes. It's called Kohileth. But the word Kohileth means a preacher. One who addresses a congregation, a preacher. Well, guess what? In Greek, an Ecclesiastes is one who stands there and addresses an Ecclesia. So the very first words is, I the preacher. (laughs) Right? So now what is he doing to us in this book? He's preaching to us about life. And so it's a sermon on life. He's not apologizing. He's saying, this is my sermon on life. This is what I've experienced, and now I'm going to give you a sermon on it. I tried everything. I drank. I messed with women. I had money. And I found out that all of life is vanity, vexation of spirit. I returned. I saw under the sun that the race is not for the swift. The battle is not for the strong. Bread is not given to those who are wise. But time and chance happens to everyone. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy, right? So it's a sermon on life. And again, if you go there, you will see that there are circumstances that you're passing through that he's honest enough to show you how you feel (laughs) and to show you at times how you feel. He will even give you some wisdom. As you're going on the journey, he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward. If one falls down, the other is there too. And if one gets cold, the other can provide heat. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. It's a sermon on life. It's a very powerful book, by the way. Perhaps that's why it's read always at funerals. <laughs> right? And then we have this one, the Song of Solomon. And this ends the poetic category. This is a lyric poem. It's a song. And in fact, the Bible is not apologizing. This is a love song. Right? This is God's, can I say this and not, this is God's Luther Vandross. <laughs> should I have gone there? Should, I shouldn't have gone there, right? Should I, shouldn't have, I, should, I should not have gone there. Should have stayed away from that, right? That conjures up many bad images, right? But this is a love song. But here's the beautiful thing about it. It is not a one-way love song. It's a love song that's reciprocal. So if you understand the Song of Solomon, it's actually someone showing love this way and the other person reciprocating love. It's a lyric poem. So at times, Solomon is the one showing love. At times, the girl is responding to his love. Then we start to understand that our relationship to God, just like God to Israel, Christ to the church, it is a love song that requires reciprocity. Draw me after you and we will run together. I will rejoice and we will be glad. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for his kisses are sweeter than wine. It's a beautiful, beautiful love song, but here's the thing. You have to know who's talking in order to interpret it properly. So you have to know what your line is in the song. (laughs) 
and what God's line is in the song. And so it takes some time to understand. And then there's a group called the Daughters of Jerusalem. And they stand and watch the love song. And every now and then they jump in and they say something. I think this is a powerful book. Because if we do this right and we show the world this love song between us and God, they'll jump in and say, wow, what a romance. So this is called the Song of Solomon. The Hebrews call it Shi'er Hasharim, the Song of Songs. There's no greater song than this. And what I think they're suggesting is that there's no greater song than that of love. So that takes you through the poetic books, those five books. Now we come to the prophetic section of the Bible. Remember this in the Old Testament. All of these prophets, can I say this, have already prophesied. So as you've read First and Second Samuel, you've read First and Second Kings, you've already, in fact, some of those books will tell you. So for instance, I think it's Second uh, Kings chapter 18, Isaiah is talking to King Hezekiah, isn't he? And he says, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. That's Isaiah talking to him. So these prophets have already prophesied, but in compiling the Bible, we put them in the prophetic section. Follow that? Give me a nod if you get that. It's important you get that now. So there are what's called major prophets and minor prophets. Please, I want you to just hear this for what it is. This is an academic term. Because I don't want you to think that the word major means more important than the other. Or the word minor means lesser. In academic circles, major simply speaks to the length of the prophecy. So in most cases, these are longer prophecies. Isaiah being, can I say this using English? 66 books. It's a longer scroll than, let's say, Obadiah, which is just a shorter scroll. So when they go to, you know, categorize these, they've got minor prophets and major prophets. It's important you understand, because I think we kind of, in our minds, treat them like this. The minor guys are less important. So sometimes you don't hear a lot of messages being preached from Obadiah. Say, who's that? (laughs) Or Habakkuk. But remember, a prophetic word from God is just that. It's a prophetic word from God. The length of the prophecy does not determine its importance. In most cases, the longer the prophecy, the worse the situation. (laughs) So if you really want to do this right, just speak once, Lord. Just one word, I'll respond. But 66 books, that means I'm dealing with a stiff-necked. And that's what Isaiah says. God says, what have I done? The ass knows its master, the ox knows its crib. My people don't even know me. Let's have a 66-book conversation. And ironically, 66 books are what we have in the entire Bible. So Isaiah becomes actually a mini-Bible. God's dealings with humanity over and over and over and over again. So let's go through them. These are the what we're calling major prophets. And in total, there are 17 prophetic books. So the major prophets, we're going to just do five of them, okay? There are five of them. Isaiah, let's do it, after Jeremiah... And then after Jeremiah, Lamentations, which is Jeremiah continuing his prophecy after it's fulfilled. And now he's crying over the result. (laughs) 
of what he told them was going to happen. <laughs> so the book of Lamentations belongs to Jeremiah. And then after Jeremiah, we have Ezekiel. And then the last of the major prophets is Daniel. A little unfair because Hosea is just about as long as Daniel. And Joel is not, not, not that short of prophet. But these are the prophetic books. And they're going to give us history from a prophetic perspective. So we're going to be looking at Israel's history through the eyes of the prophets. What the prophets see, what they say, what they warn the people about, and the results of either listening to the prophetic word or rejecting the prophetic word. Okay? And then the last of this section, we've done well tonight, it's 10-2, are what we're calling the minor prophets or the minor prophetic scrolls. If there's 17 in total, then there's five major, and that would mean that how many? Twelve. Remember I told you those two numbers to remember? Five and twelve. Five and twelve. Five books of Moses. Twelve historical books. Five poetic books. Five major prophets. Twelve minor prophets. The minor prophets go like this. They start with the book of Hosea, and they take us all the way to the last of the canonical prophets, which is Malachi. Okay, in each one, you can actually take each book, pick it up from where it is, and put it in the section of the Bible where it belongs. So you, you can lift up Hosea and put him somewhere in 1 Kings, and there he is. You can take Malachi, lift him up, and put him somewhere, no doubt in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, because he's talking to them at that time when they come out of, of Babylon. All right, so those are your 39 scrolls that make up the Old Covenant. So far, so good? All right, well, guess what? That's it. <laughs> Not that difficult, right? It's quite simple. If you just think it through like that, read it like that, and once you've gone through it, then begin to put it where it belongs chronologically, it will help you a lot. Because if you know what Ezekiel is talking about and what the situation, you'll understand why he prophesies what he prophesies. Here's what I'm going to do for you now. I did a little bit of work for you before we move to Q&As. I'd love to hear some Q&As from you. But last week, a few questions came forward, some online, one in person. Here's the question that was asked. Um, biblical resources, what can you recommend? I've got a table of resources for those that want to stop by that are here in the sanctuary, take a look at them. But I've also listed some resources that I think will, will help you along the way. Um, beginning with some dictionaries, some encyclopedias, and they're all over here, by the way. For instance, there's the Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible, volumes one and two. And so whatever you're looking for, if you want to understand what the Mishnah is, you want to understand what the Passover is, it's an encyclopedia of, of the scriptures. And in fact, of the entire world of the Bible. It's phenomenal. I've got it over here on the table if you want to take a look at it. There's also dictionaries of the Old Testament. Again, anything in the Old Testament you want to understand alphabetically. Circumcision, want to read more about that. We've got that specifically on the books of Moses. Got a dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels over there, and even a dictionary of Paul and his epistles. All right? Some more. It's important for you, I think, that every believer that's serious about studying the Bible gets a handbook. And what a handbook is really is going to walk you through and just talk to you about the culture of the Bible. 
So what was this? What were these animals used for? Why would you choose this animal to do this? Why would you drink from wells? All of these things are found in a biblical handbook. It acquaints you with the culture in which the Bible was written, or can I say spoken, and it will help you now with translation and, of course, with interpretation. I was sharing this with someone before we began the session tonight. Number six I think number six should be in the possession of every believer. It's called a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. I've got a copy over here uh, for all of these. I'm sure you can get them online, especially the Strong's. But what the Strong's does for you, it helps you linguistically. Every single word that's in the Bible, Strong's will give you its Hebrew definition, its Hebrew word, its Hebrew meaning, and its Greek meaning. So that's why a Strong's is going to be a book about this size, but every word that's in the original manuscript. So if you want to know what does the word um, begat, what does the word begat mean in this particular passage, it will show you. And if you're interested in seeing how to use the Strong's, we can do that after the presentation. But I think this is something that every student of the scripture should have in their possession. That's just my, my opinion. It's gold. And then I've got some Bible background commentaries for you that you can look at things that actually take you through the book, books of the Bible, book by book, but also do it from the background of that particular book so we can understand why Jacob would meet so-and-so at a well, all those kind of things, also very important for you to have. There was a question that was asked last week, and I'm going to answer it like this. Somebody online said, based on what you were teaching about people's opinions, biases, and stuff like that, here's the question. Do you recommend that Christians study the word together, or is it best to study alone? And I, I've got an answer for you, but I'm going to use the scriptures to do this. Here's my answer. I'm going to use these uh, five scriptures thereabouts. I'm going to begin with First Timothy, and this one I'm very, very serious, because not only am I seeing it and hearing it firsthand, it's alive and well. Timothy says, or Paul says in First Timothy chapter 4, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times many are going to give heed to seducing spirits and to doctrines of devils. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I'm standing flat-footed. Many people, whether in the body or the collective world, they're succumbing to doctrines of devils. And the, the, the danger is that it's presented in such a way because some of these devils have read the Bible. <laughs> to some degree, know where it's found, etc., can challenge any one of us, but I'm going to tell you, and I'm not going to try to, you know, be overly spiritual, but you know when something just doesn't even sit with your spirit, doesn't even resonate with your spirit, the anger, the hatred that you hear, the vitriol that's coming through the scriptures, I swear until the Lord comes, it's the doctrine of hell. And so here's what I need to say. When it comes to studying the Bible, use these scriptures. Because I do believe that it's important that Christians get together and study. But use this one, Proverbs 27, verse 17. Iron sharpens iron. So if you're going to study with someone, make sure that they're desiring to be sharp in the word of God. And secondarily, sharper in their relationship with God. Don't study with people that have agendas to fight. <laughs> Because the goal of studying the scriptures, it's not this. Is, am I right? It's to connect me to God. And how do I know that? Just watch the fruits of my life. The goal of scripture is not so that I'm going to fight Leroy after service with this scripture. 
it's to draw me closer to God and you will testify that you see the fruits of that proximity to God in my life. How I speak, how I conduct myself, all of those things are a testimony that iron sharpens iron. The presupposition is the person you're studying with is sharp and can sharpen you and you're sharp and can sharpen them. Here's the second one, Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9. Two are better than one. So in that dynamic, we benefit from each other because we're drawing from each other. Now, that's very dangerous because you've got to make sure that the well that you're drawing from, water is good. And you've got to also make sure that your water is good as well. Matthew 18, 20. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I'm there. Now, think that one through. If two or three are gathered and he's there, he then becomes the instructor in that moment. And the more we gather like this, it's the more we become like the chief instructor that's in the midst of us. So yes, Christians should study together if they're using these principles. Malachi 3.16 says it like this, and those that feared the Lord, they spoke often one to another, and a book of remembrance was written from the Lord. So yes, I think Christians should study together. But I think you should be very careful who you're choosing to study with. Let me make one more statement. If you're studying with someone and what they're studying and teaching dishonors what's being taught from a pulpit or from a ministry, that's dishonorable. Yeah. Did you hear what I just said? Yeah. So you should not study with someone who's going to take you, they're attending a ministry, whether this one or anyone, and what they're teaching you is in direct contradiction to what that ministry is teaching. They are thrusting you into confusion. So what you should say to them is, why do you go there if you don't believe that? <laughs> and all of a sudden, then the conversation becomes very real. Because to say what your house is not saying to someone that belongs to your house is dishonorable. If you ask me, did I believe everything that my former pastor taught? Some things I said no. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't open my mouth. That's honor. Because we don't have to agree with anything. But to take someone and pull them aside and begin to teach them things that their leaders are not teaching, their organization is not teaching, you're not edifying them. You are destroying them. Lastly, you're also discrediting yourself. Because they're wondering... Why do you go there? And it's worse when it comes to the mouth of those who are in leadership. Because then you start asking yourselves, why are you a leader there if you don't believe the things that are being taught there? So that's my, that's my brief answer there. And also, I just prepared this for you. Let me go back. Here's my answer. Um, just something I prepared, rather, not my answer. I want to show you some genres of literature that exist in the Bible. So when you're reading the Bible always be honest to say that I'm reading literature. God is not offended when you say the Bible is literature because it is. It's literature. It's that which is read, written and it's to be read. It's literature. So all of the books or scrolls are not the same literature. There's different genres. Again, a, a, a person and I were speaking and I said genres exist in all of life. So there are different genres of music. So you may have, for instance, a slower song. 
And if we're in the world at large, let's say there's a slower song being played at a wedding, you don't go on the dance floor and start going dancing very fast. You would slow down and maybe dance with a partner, and it's a slower. What you've done there is you've interpreted the genre of the music. If they play a faster song, you would then probably move a lot faster. You've interpreted the genre. Now watch this. If it's a slower song and you're out there carrying on, you're making yourself look like a fool. And the reason why I say that is you can also do the same thing with the Bible by misinterpreting the genre of the text that you're reading. Here are the different genres that exist. Sometimes, and I'll give you a book where you can find that, you have narratives in the Bible. What's a narrative? It's a story. It's a story. Jesus is actually one of the best at just telling narratives. So there's stories. The story of Abraham and Isaac is a narrative. It's a story. It's a historical narrative. But at the end of the day, it is a story. You're reading a narrative. So then again, there are rules. Then chances are quite likely that much of the information in that narrative can be taken literally, depending on what kind of narrative. It's a story. Is it a true story? Is it a parable that's spoken as a narrative? So then you, you begin to understand how to interpret what you are reading. Like I told you before, we have poetry in the Bible. So then you're going to use some rules. I'm interpreting poetry now, so maybe I shouldn't take that literally. That's poetic. And this is so simple. Generally, when I speak to people and they start showing me things and they start telling me, remember I told you about the black Jesus from Revelation 1? And gentlemen came and started coming at me about the black. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 54 now, so I'm tired. I'm not, I'm not, if I was 40, I'd have the energy for that. But I'm tired. I just want to go home and see my children, eat some food and go to bed. Because in the morning, my feet, I got to stretch them out. I'm tired. I don't have time to argue about all that nonsense, right? But, but if you don't know what you're reading, you're going to swear that that's literal or that's figurative. And so knowing the genre is important. Again, I'm reading poetry. How do I read the Song of Solomon in a poetic way? I'm reading a song. How do I read that? You have prophecy. How do I interpret prophecy? Is prophecy only for the future or is prophecy forthtelling? and foretelling. How do I interpret prophecy? Because watch, if prophecy is only for the future, it means nothing to the audience that's listening to it. Isaiah is prophesying to a people. It means something to them right there, doesn't it? But prophecy is also foretelling. So there are two dimensions to understanding prophecy as well. So it's using that. There's gospel. How do I understand that gospel genre? that the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John use. They're using a particular genre called gospel. There are parables. Again, how do I understand a parable? A certain man went down from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Did he literally go down, or is it a story? And then depending, and you, you can hear people preach this different way, and you, you can also tell how people are using interpretation because I can come up here and tell you that when he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he should never have gone down. And this is what happens to you when you go, you fall among thieves. So what I'm telling you, whether it's true or not, I'm showing you how I interpret it because I'm looking at it literally. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So there's a problem with going down. Or maybe to get to Jericho, you've got to go down because it's down. 
and Jerusalem is higher than Jericho. It depends on how you interpret it. And then watch. If you shout because I say he went down, don't go down. And that may not be the answer. Guess what? Remember I told you last week? The Holy Spirit will meet you based on what you believe. Remember I told you that? Remember I told you Jesus is not the lily of the valley? The girl is. But we've been shouting over him being the lily of the valley. Has the Holy Spirit stopped us from shouting over that? He meets us where we believe. But he doesn't keep us there. You've got this one. You've got history. That's what the book of Acts is. And much of the Old Testament is history as well. This is an interesting one because it's given no play in church circles in terms of understanding it. But this is the one that people run to all the time. Apocalyptic literature. And that's what the book of Revelation is. It's apocalyptic literature. That's what the book of Daniel is. It's apocalyptic literature. But most people, when they get ready, especially to talk about the end times, they go to the book of Revelation. So the guy that came to me last week, I said, because he came with revelation, I said, do you know what literature you're reading? It's prophecy. I said, yes, but what kind of prophecy? He doesn't know. So when I told him apoc, he said, what? But he's going to swear to me that he knows what the book means, but he doesn't know what the genre is that he's interpreting. So he is going to walk away with a literal Jesus. But if I were to challenge him a little further, I, I said, but you mean he's got a sword coming out of his mouth? You see what I'm saying? How far do you take it? And where he's a literal Jesus in chapter 1, that's not a literal beast coming out of the sea. You see how we're selective in how we want to interpret? Because our interpretations in most cases are guiding agendas. But we need to understand what are we interpreting? Daniel is the same thing. It's apocalyptic literature. And then in some places you've got a combination. You might have narrative, history, and apocalyptic literature all mixed in one. Daniel is a perfect book. Sometimes he's talking about something historical. Other times he's describing it in apocalyptic language. Other times he's using narrative. When he stands before Nebuchadnezzar and he and the Hebrew boys decide that they're not going to eat the king's meat, that's not apocalyptic. We are not eating the king's meat. That's narrative. That's history. We're not doing that. When he talks about beasts coming out of the sea looking like leopards and lions, and eagles. He's not talking about literal. And I always say to myself, just think, brothers and sisters, it's not that difficult. Leopards don't live in the sea. So when you think like that, you then start, oh, so he's using symbols and images that require interpretation. And in most cases, he's going to give you the interpretation of what he's talking about so that we can understand. And with that, I am finished. Just want to remind you, and please come if there are any questions. We've got 20 minutes. Next week, we're off. I want you to use that time just to go through what we've discussed, and then we come back together again, especially online. We're back together on Wednesday, June the 1st. Can I throw it over to you now, and you let me know if there's anything that you want to discuss, share, ask, and we'll take some time to do that. Okay, the floor is open for you. The mics are here, one, two, and three. And can I say this too? Let's do this. I was just rethinking how we're doing the Q&As. Let's make sure that the Q&As are relative to what we discussed tonight. Because if we don't, then we can be all over the place. And we'll get to everything, believe me, ultimately. But let's try to keep it within the scope of what we discussed. So it will help those who are the hearers as well. All right. Any questions at all? I see someone coming right there. 
Right, Pastor. Um, you talked about the different genres and interpreting them correctly. And I imagine that um, in some of them, it's, it's more obvious when you switch from apocalyptic to right. prophetic, etc. But in the ones where it's not so clear, how do we, how do we make the distinction between what type of genre we're, we're, we're reading? Mm -hmm. Just so we're not misinterpreting something as literal when it may be... Um, I know exactly what you're asking, yeah. And this is where we can talk after. That's where a good commentary comes in. And I'm very careful with commentaries because sometimes they can also be written from the author's biases. But most commentaries will help you to understand, okay, in this passage, now we're going to be looking at this genre of literature. And so part of studying the Bible is having those secondary aids, like a good commentary, to say, okay, Daniel chapter 7, we move from a literal to an apocalyptic. But in most cases, like you say, it's quite obvious. And just using just, can I say, the intellect, you will know that he's describing something that isn't literal, or you'll know when he is talking about something. So most cases it's obvious, other times a good commentary will help us to understand what is that particular genre that I'm reading at this time. Okay, I would really like you guys to come and mill around that table and just look at some of the resources, because um, I think it's very handy. Thank you, Ryan. Any other questions at all? Okay. Am I going to conclude? You let me know. I'm going to just give us 30 more seconds. You let me know. I don't know if there's any questions coming through online. The psalmist is playing. The clock is going. Let's rise to our feet, everyone. Thank you so much for tonight. Those of you that are joining us at home, thank you so much for tuning in as well. Let's take 30 seconds and let's just reflect on what we have learned thus far. I hope you can be patient with me because I'm doing what I call heavy lifting before we open the pages. And the reason why I think it's important is there's often a rush to open the pages, but then we're, we encounter some stuff that we may not know how to interpret and we're forced every time we read the Bible, to come away with meaning. And meaning is what we're after. What do you mean, God? And how does this meaning apply to my life? If you put it in that context, you see how important it is to come to the right meaning. So I don't want to make, well, let me put it like this. I want to make as little mistakes as possible with the message that you've communicated to us. And the reality is, Churches by churches, ministries by ministries, we can all see a lot of the errors that we have made. And then here's the greater truth. We can also see how the very scriptures have then become the source of people's pain, people's frustration, and even their hurts. And in a lot of cases, I would say this to brothers and sisters, I don't think most pastors are trying to hurt people. I don't think so that at all. I think the majority of pastors are sincere the majority of ministries, leaders are sincere. But sometimes it comes back to this. Do we understand what God was trying to say to us? We have something in the world at large. We say it's called a broken telephone. You know that, right? I'll tell Jasmine a message and Jasmine will tell Natasha that message. She'll tell David that message. But somewhere along the line, the message gets. And so what I intended for... My sister here to hear, she hears something completely different and she has to do something with that. So it is with God's word. It's been coming down 
through the mouth of the Holy Ghost into the hands of men. And he then entrusted, I, I don't even know why he would do this. He would put it in the hands of broken vessels and say, it's like, take the bread, but my hands are dirty and serve my people. No wonder the priest then decided that every time he would go into the tabernacle, he would stop by the laver and he would make sure that he washed his hands and washed his feet, lest the, the ministry was defiled. It's, it's not easy, whether it's teaching it, learning it, it's a journey to learn God's word. But I think it's, as I said before, it's worth it to draw close to him. And I believe that God owes it to us to bring us to truth. Positions do not set us free. Agendas do not loose us. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Lift your hands, everyone, just for a moment. That's what I want. I say it loud, even if they're listening online. Rhema is not designed to argue with anyone. We're not a debating church. We're not in a fight with anyone. Pastor Meikle's not in a fight with anyone. We're designed to know him. That's all we want. We just want to know him. We want to be acquainted with his resurrection. We want to understand his sufferings and perchance be made conformable to his image. That's what we desire, God. That's why we've gathered tonight online and in person. That's why we're doing the hard work. We're searching for you. We are knocking at the door. Come on in, God, and sup with us. We're seeking you with our whole heart, and we will find you. We're asking questions. And we want to receive from you. Bread of heaven. Change the song. Bread of heaven. Feed us. Until we want no more. Teach us the way of God. Father, Israel knew your works. But Moses knew your ways. We want to know your ways. We want to know you, God. Stretch your hands, everybody. Lift them up now. Open my spirit, God, and give me revelation knowledge. Break open this loaf called the Word of God and feed me on the eternal bread. Help me to understand its pages. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now, Father, today order our steps in your word and we thank you for it in Jesus name hallelujah 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 teach us Holy Spirit teach us teach me teach us great teacher Teach us, Rabbi. Teach us, Master. In Jesus' name.